Jonathan. Mark. The chosen lawyer. How are you, buddy? First and foremost, an old friend, right? Brothers, really. How long? How long has it been? You and I, man? We go way, way back now. I'm trying to think. I'm I'm thinking based on real estate. It's always based on real estate. That's how we met. Yes. Through Blair. Blair introduced me to you. Correct. And so that would have been when we first met Blair. It was probably like 2009. It's definitely over 10 years now, easily. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's right. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. So you started off, you were uh, working at um, Goldman Spring when right. we met. Uh, right. You were a real estate lawyer there, and, and that's obviously how we connected. Um, I wasn't even in real estate at the time. I was uh, uh, just there as a client for my own real estate transactions. Tell me about the progression. So you've gone from Goldman Spring to now partner at Corman LLP. So when you met me at Goldman Spring, I was an associate. You know, I'm, it's, it's funny, you know, when I look back on those years, I laugh. It was a very interesting setup over there. So, I, and I could talk about it freely. So we had, at the, the, over there was six, seven partners and me as the one associate. Most law firms, you have about one, maybe two associates per partner. I was the only associate. So I was working. So you just got dumped on. Night and day, it was unbelievable. I remember this one night, it was like a Thursday night, it was like midnight. I called up my mom, I know she's a night owl. I said, mom, how you doing? She goes, good, what's going on? I said, I'm still at the office. I'm looking out the window. She goes, what are you looking for? I said, I'm wondering if somewhere out there, I made a Jewish mother happy. I hope you're enjoying this, because I sure ain't. (laughs) But it was one of those things about, you know, earning your stripes, putting in the work, getting the experience, getting the knowledge. And I'm very grateful for them that way. They were very good to me and really built me up. And as I got aligned to Corman's LLP, it was a small, small world. Um, My partner, David Corman, almost worked at Goldman Springs, so happens, years before me. But at the time, uh, I I believe a recession hit. And so he did not join them. He ended up joining his cousin, Jerry. They ended up being Corman's, and then I joined as the third partner. Jerry retired, and now it's the two of us, myself and David Corman, as partners. And then life sprang from there. So Goldman Spring gave me my springboard, but we were still interconnected and still keep a good relationship to this day. It's very important not to burn bridges in life, certainly. But I got to say, uh, being able to run my own show, having more freedom, being able to mentor the younger generation, being able to progress the area of law and how it's practiced, being able to go to paperless, virtual, uh, I love it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. And that's where the entrepreneur comes out of you, right? So it's one thing to be a lawyer, but then having the the drive to get into business for yourself—that's that's a different thing altogether. I was ingrained. It's funny. From uh, I just mentioned this on my baseball podcast, so I have a couple different shows that I run. And I didn't know about the podcast, the baseball one. There's a baseball one as well. Okay, but we're talking about how there's so many second generation, third generation uh, baseball players, basketball players, wrestlers, and I was saying, you know what? But that doesn't just go as far as uh, in sports. It could be anywhere. So I'm a second generation lawyer. I know my accountant. He's a second, third generation accountant. So any line of work, it could go that way. From the time I was born, it was ingrained in me, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be the lawyer. So all I ever knew was I was going to be the lawyer. But when I finished high school, I decided to take a business degree before going to law because I figured I'm going to have a lot of business clients. I'm going to deal with business transactions. They're not going to teach me that in law school. So better for me to know how business works, practically from an education standpoint, 
in order to be able to be a better lawyer. And I'm so grateful I did that because I use that degree every day. Yeah, I bet. Certainly. I bet. I bet. Um, how long were you at Goldman Spring? I don't remember. So Goldman, I was there for approximately three years. Three years. Three years. And then, and then, and then there was the springboard over to Cormans. So Goldman Spring, I was there for three years. Um, and it just got to the point that we were talking and from their trajectory, you know, they were happy to have associate levels and I was ready to do my own thing. I was ready. I already had my own client base and I was saying, I, I need to grow. And they, and they supported that. I thought that I was going to go open up my own law firm. I had the whole game, game plan set up. It was going to be Hakoen Law, the chosen lawyer, going to get it all set up. And at the very, very last second, so now this is December of 2014, and I'm planning for an early 2015 launch. I get a phone call from a David Corman. He's in Miami at Christmas time. He says, I bumped into an old buddy of mine at a hockey game, and I told him that we're planning to one day get a new lawyer and start doing uh, succession planning. And he said to him, you don't need a young lawyer. You need somebody ready right now. I got the guy for you. You better call him immediately. And I said to David, you know what? This could be the best timing or the worst timing because I'm literally ready to go on my own. I remember talking to this but it was, back at, at the time that this happened. Absolutely, because yeah. we were all evolving at the same time. You yeah. were the same thing. Like we we're all evolving in our in our past. It's funny how that works out. How you, old are you now? So now I'm I'm 46. You're 46. So turning yeah, you're 47 this year. Yeah. I'm turning 46 in October. Yeah, yeah. So, so we were on very similar paths at the time. You know, you were branching. I was branching. And I go to meet David and Jerry. I swear to you, Mark, I've met at least 12 different law firms up to this point looking to buy out a business, uh, buy in, slowly take over, whatever it was. And nothing felt right. I meet them in five minutes. I knew this felt right. We did a handshake deal, nothing on paper. And we said, let's do it. Right into partnership? Uh, yes. So there's different levels of partnership yeah, yeah, at the yeah. time. So it was like a junior partner type situation. Yeah. I show up my first day. It was a Friday. I'm supposed to start on Monday, but me being the type A personality I am, I said, I'm going to set myself up and everything. Let's get this thing going. So I'm ready to go hit, hit the ground running on Monday. I bump into Jerry. Our offices are back to back to each other. We actually have a door in between. So literally, I can hear every conversation. He can hear mine. And he opens up those two doors, walks in. He goes, nice to see you again. Everything's great. Just to let you know, I'm on my way to Israel for the next three weeks. Good luck. You'll look after my files. You'll do fine. I could tell. Nice, nice. He just threw me into the how, water. How were those three weeks? It was interesting. It was interesting because I also showed up and I said uh, to the admin, I said, nice to meet you. And I dumped my files. I said, here's all these new files you're opening, by the way. Everything that got moved over because the clients wanted to stay with me. So they weren't expecting that either. So it was a bit of, I wouldn't say it was growing pains. It was more, I decided to use my time smartly. I knew I couldn't burn myself out. I'm starting in a new business, but where I did it, I think the smart way, which I tell anybody in any industry, especially we work, we work with a lot of realtors, you know, in our industry, I tell them, you're going to move into a new brokerage. You are becoming a new broker. You're becoming a new lawyer, a new accountant, whatever it is. Your first, first job for the first few weeks, all I, need, I think you need to do is go through your Rolodex. I want you to spend your whole time emailing, texting, calling, every single person you ever met and tell them where you are, what you're up to, so they know where to locate you. And from there, I set myself up every single week, Mark, no word of a lie, either a coffee, breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever it was, I'm having a meeting with somebody no matter what. Now, Not would, sure would, you, would you still take the same approach or would you just put it on Instagram? 
you know what? I would still take the exact same approach. Yeah, good. Instagram is good. It's 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 like casting out a net. Like I'm going out in Nova Scotia and I'm gonna put a cast a net. Maybe I'm gonna get some lobsters or something. But if I know there's a dedicated water, I'm still have my dedicated fishing line. I'm gonna use the right bait. I think in person is much much better. Exactly. And I do both. Yeah. But really, where once I got that initial, it took me about seriously two and a half months. Going, I had about. 5,000 contacts to go through, maybe 4,500. Mm-hmm. I made sure to do that, spent a lot of time networking, reacquainting with people. And then it was that reaffirmation. Don't worry about getting new business all the time. Make sure your existing database is happy with you and build that up. We just had a strategy session yesterday and we were talking about that, you know, creating some training videos and mm-hmm. the difference between nurturing your existing client database. You yes. know, Candace, for example, she, she always uses the number 300. She has 300 clients that are her clients, she owns them, she you know, knows their birth date, she knows everything about them, she knows when they just had a baby, and, and nurturing that database versus your digital lead database is completely different, completely different, right? Everybody has, a, as long as you have a strategy and you're doing it, all the power to you. I don't like when there's no strategy because then you're kind of moving at random. Some people have this board. I love the idea of the board. You got this board in your kitchen, you got this board in your bedroom, in your office, wherever it is, and it's your 10, 12 most important people. You need to make sure those 10, 12 people are happy with you at all times, by all means. For me, it's in my phone favorites. I got my 20 phone favorites. I'm looking at my phone favorites every day. I wanna make sure everybody's good on the phone favorites. Just make sure there's a system. People are choosing to work with you at the ultimate end of the day. I've had people that have worked with me for over 20 years. Maybe I've never even met them in person. You know, we've had always like a phone, virtual, whatever it is. Some of them, I became really good friends with them. We've done dinners. I vacationed with clients. We became good friends. But keep those relationships, whatever it takes, because people have to feel important. They don't like that feeling being passed off. They don't like that feeling that they don't matter. But I established, like, for example, you and I are taping today. It's a weekday. I've told people on all my files, I put me, another lawyer, and a clerk. Because if I'm in a meeting or I am being interviewed, I can't have you waiting. I'm just saying, Jonathan's not available. Maybe Jonathan will get back to you later. I want somebody to get back to you immediately. And then there's a follow-up. And if I need to speak to them, I'll speak to them this afternoon. Yeah, especially in a closing situation where people are high stress, right? As In real estate, it's always high stress. It's always short deadlines. The days of these 90, 120-day closings is over. It's always less than 60, very often less than 30. People just want, Mark, they just want communication. All their cravings, communication. And because of all the mediums that people message, they'll message you on Facebook Messenger, Instagram, they'll message you on their text message. But when they don't get a response, they're not happy. So if you're not able to do it, make sure there's somebody who is checking that stuff and make sure there is follow-up. It's all about the follow-up. It's funny. Whenever you have conflict in business or controversy, most times, almost 99% of the time, it's a lack or of or poor communication. I put down... To me in life, if you want to have a relationship, whether it's personal or it's professional, whatever it is, you do two things and you're going to have this relationship, I guarantee you. It's called expectations and communication. That's it. Establish from the onset what are the expectations for this? What are we each going to be doing and what do we expect for our results and keep in communication? Mm -hmm. When you drop the ball in the expectation, you could be communicating great, but if you're not on the same page for expectation-wise and goals, you ain't going to get very far and if you do have those expectations, but you're not communicating, that's a problem as well. People don't like to be left. Even if they're not communicating well, they're still expecting to hear the For communication. Sure. Yeah. Stay on your communications. I don't see myself as a lawyer. I see myself as a communicator. I go to sleep at night. 
My emails are zero. My text messages are zero. My phone calls are zero. There's no notifications because it's all binned it up. Off, yeah. You yeah. have to. You absolutely have to. When I learned what they called inbox zero, it changed my life. Mm. I realized so much of my stress was sitting in unanswered messages, unanswered events, and I just felt like I was behind all the time. Monday morning starts, and I'm drudging what I had to deal with two weeks ago. No more of that. Now everything has an assigned due date and time, and that day, I'm just dealing with that day. But I like, at some point at night, not too late, obviously, not right before bed, I want to see what my calendar is for the next day, I want to see what my to-do list is, maybe shuffle a few things around, then I feel fresh when I start the morning. I check and respond to emails twice a day. So I'll come in here and uh, first thing I do is sit down, answer any unanswered emails from the, the previous day or night. Uh, and I won't check my, once I get through those, I'll start my work day where I'm tackling whatever project I'm tackling, dealing with, uh, uh, you know, accounting or back-end deal processing. And then I'll, I won't check my emails again until one o'clock in the afternoon. When you're constantly checking your emails and you have notifications just dinging while you're trying to get through something, you'll never get what you're doing done, right? Because the emails just keep coming and coming and coming. And then before I leave at the end of the day, I'll just do a quick run through the emails and respond to anything. I turned off the sound notification on my phone for emails because it was stressing me out. Yeah. Every, it's like a Las Vegas slot machine sometimes. When I don't have to hear that sound, I feel like I, I know, I know yeah. there's always going to be emails. I don't have to worry. I don't look at my phone right now. That ding stresses me out. There's emails coming out. So just avoid that ding and try to put less dings in your life, certainly. And how, I like that. Sometimes, like for me, I do that for text messages and phone calls. There's a dedicated time slot of when I'm going to deal yeah. with them, and then I'm going to power through them. But I'm not leaving it for days. And the same, same thing goes for your personal time, right? Like when I'm home with the kids, shutting those notifications off is mandatory. I cannot be responding to business emails. One, the kids won't let me because <laughs> they're climbing all over me. Um, but it's just, yeah, you can't, you can't be there at that in the present when you're worried about the ding in the background. That ding stresses me out. You want a good story? Go. So you've met my son, Jeremiah. Yeah. Jeremiah is almost 18 now. He's uh, working full-time at a car dealership, loves cars. He's 18 now, eh? He's almost oh 18. God. Yes. Taller than me, but that doesn't take much, obviously. But doing well, head full of hair, loving his life. I remember Jeremiah when Jeremiah was like five years old, okay? Four, maybe even four years old. So we did always a nighttime routine. You know, I was raising him as a single dad. We have our dinner. We go to the park. We go everything. Go at bath time. And then it's, it's uh, snuggle time. Snuggle time was reading a book, waiting till he goes to sleep for a little bit, and then I go. Not sitting there for hours because I told him it's your bed. It's your space. I'm not here all night, buddy. Not going to happen. But 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. At one point, I, go, I come into bed. He goes, hold on a minute. Is that your phone? I said, yes. He goes, this is a phone-free zone. There's no phone during snuggle time. If you're going to bring your phone, you're not welcome here. You can leave now. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. And Jeremiah's you know, in charge. Jeremiah's in charge. But you know what? Uh, the innocence of youth, they're right. Sure. I remember my niece, my oldest niece, when she was like three years old, she took her toy phone, her mom was telling me, and saying, Daddy, Daddy, what time are you coming home? She knew the only way to reach Daddy is on the phone. Kids pick this stuff up really, yeah. really quick. They absorb everything, and, uh, and they know when you're distracted and not paying attention to them. They, they know when you're just, yeah, 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 and not really listening or, or watching their new dance move. Like, you, you really have to, uh, you have to be careful. But it's okay for them to be distracted and oh, be know, doing all their social media stuff. London, and, get dressed. London, get dressed. Uh -huh, we have to be uh -huh, at the door uh -huh, in five uh -huh. minutes. <laughs> yeah. But they don't want us to do that. And that's yeah. where I say to parents, you know, especially new parents, they grow up so quickly, savor every moment because for us as parents, you know, we love our kids, 
the one thing we're always realizing and we're feeling is no matter what time we spend with them, it never feels like it's enough. And the time went by too quickly and you look back and you're like, I wish I would have done more. And that's where I made a prioritization in my life. We did a lot of father-son road trips. We've done, we went everywhere in the world together that we could. And you know what? Those are the memories. Those are the moments. I took him to Madison Square Gardens with my uh, nephew. We saw one of the biggest boxing upsets in uh, history when Joshua lost his belt yeah, at the time. This, yeah. the, the stadium was filled with people from the UK. Nobody saw that coming. Andy Ruiz was a guy that was an underdog. Nobody had heard of him. And we saw that live. That's a memory. You could say you never, not, can't put a price on it, but if you've ever stayed in New York City, sure, you can put a price on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But it's building those memories versus, you know, you come and your kids are one day married and they have their own kids. And you're saying, wow, I wish I'd put that time into it. That's why you see a lot of parents are very involved with the grandkids because they did not put as much time into their own kids. Mm-hmm. And I, I can definitely tell you as being a dad, I sit, look at my son and he's my best friend. And that's a relationship it took that's time great. to cultivate. That's great. Um, you know, one, one of the goals of this, this podcast uh, uh, is to kind of get into how people that have so much on the go manage it all, right? And I know a few years ago, uh, and so we'll get into a few different topics because you actually have a lot of things going on right now. And, I, and I've learned even more so 10 minutes talking to you before we started filming here. But um, some funny things, some interesting things. But, um, you know, I know a few years ago you really got into health and wellness. You know, I think uh, like the rest of us, uh, you had a few LBs on and and uh, you decided, I'm getting in shape. Uh, tell me about that transition into your health and wellness journey, yogi, boxing, training, bodybuilding, I just learned, um, which I actually remember now I know. I remember that you did do that. But uh, talk, talk to me about that. I wasn't wearing Speedos, so I know you didn't block that out for that reason. There's <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> some long shorts on there, thank God. It's, look, like a lot of us, when I hit 40, my extended warranty expired. Yeah. It was over. Like, I got so many health ailments all of a sudden out of nowhere. And when I was in my 20s, I was in my 30s, I never put on a pound. I ate like crap. What were the signs? What were the signs? What, what, really, what really kind of woke you up, just so people are aware? It's funny because, um, you know, I, I was putting on weight. I'd never put on weight in my life. And I just figured all my pants are shrinking, all my shirts are shrinking. It's got to be the wash. You know, I was yelling at uh, my partner at the time, you know, or just telling her, you know, uh, what are you doing with my pants? I don't get it. Stop drying them on hot. Yeah, I don't, I don't get this. Hang dry them, you know. <laughs> and I saw a picture one day that my niece took when we were out hiking with the family. And I looked at this picture of me and her together, and I didn't really ever see this, even though I look at the mirror every day, and I'm like, damn, I'm effing fat. Mm-hmm. Wow, I've done it. I can like, see my face, everything. I went to go weigh myself. I didn't weigh myself in years, and I was 40, 50 pounds above where I was for almost all my adult years. I said, I really let myself go here. My eating habits are absolute garbage. I, I see this. And it still did not really wake me up. What woke me up was going to the family doctor, getting my physical done, and him sitting and talking to me at the results. And he looked at me and goes, buddy, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, you're in your 30s. You have the cholesterol of a 70-year-old. You are going to die. I'm not going to lie to you. Your track is to death. You need to fix this. And he wanted to put me on cholesterol meds. And I said to him, I'm in my 30s. If I go on cholesterol meds now, I'm going to be on forever. And I know those things destroy your liver. So he goes, and it doesn't solve the problem. But according to him, you know, what he was telling me, just so you know, there's good cholesterol, there's bad cholesterol. You can't fix that by yourself. It's hereditary. That's how it is. You have a history in your family, which means you're going to have it no matter what. I said, I believe through exercise nutrition, I can do this. Give me some time. 
says, come do your routines. Come to me in three months. I came to him in three months. He goes, you haven't done squat. Results are the same. I said, give me three more months. Came back three months later. I was trying. I really was trying. I started and then I fell off the wagon. Started, fell off the wagon. No good. And he said to me, look, I'm going to give you basically six more months. You come back in six months. If you haven't really taken this seriously, I'm telling you, you have to go on cholesterol meds or you're done. So I bit the bullet. I was a blogger at the time. I was really big into my baseball blogging while a full-time lawyer. I'm driving to work one day, and I, and I talk about this in my book. It's one of the things that, uh, it's part memoir, but it's mostly about setting up life systems. So for myself, I drove to work, and it hit me on a Monday morning. I mean, I was marinating. A lot of my best ideas, Mark, I, I plant a seed for myself, and I let it marinate, and then it'll hit me one day. I'll sleep on it, I'll sleep on it, I'll sleep on it. And then one day I'll just do it. People think it's a spontaneous, irrational decision. That's exactly my process. It's not. I marinate till I'm ready. And then I drove and I said, I'm done blogging. I am done writing. I called my, my head writer. I said, take over the blog. I'm done. I'm not writing anymore. I'm not going to write about life. I'm going to go live life. Mm. And from my research, I decided because I knew I was lazy. I knew I wasn't going to commit to very much. I used to love the gym when I was younger and I fell off and everyone back. I said, yoga, yoga is it. I'm going to go and I'm going to become a yogi and I'm going to go look at, look at people, how they look generally, you know, they got the yoga body, the quote unquote mm -hmm. stereotypical. You don't see a yogi sitting outside smoking outside the yoga studio before they go in, you know, they have a healthy lifestyle. I'm going to go do some yoga. I'm going to go hire a nutritionist, dietitian, whatever it takes, get myself on a routine. I'm going to fix this. And in six months, I dropped over 40 pounds doing yoga three times a week and working with the dietitian who gave me a better meal plan, not even amazing, but I, she knew what I was eating and she helped me slowly pull little things out, put a little bit of stuff in. And I did that and I've stayed like that since, and it's been now knock on wood, 10 years. Amazing. Going. I remember that transformation and you did, and it was obvious as soon as I, well, yeah, I didn't see you in a few months and then all of a sudden you came in and you're half the size, right? Yeah. Um, and then you introduced, boxing and you got really big into boxing there at one point so uh boxing was like always like a pipe dream it was so when i was growing up you know everybody had their idols right yeah so i'm i'm going to jewish school i'm this little jewish kid in grade two grade three and you know everybody's talking about who their heroes are and the teacher comes to me and she's like who's your idol she, and i look at her i go when i grow up i want to be mr t <laughs> I want to be the black guy with the mohawk and the chains. That's what I want. So I had a giant poster of Mr. T. I remember watching him in Rocky. Rocky 3. And yeah. I, a Clubber Lang, and I wanted to be Clubber Lang. It's my favorite Rocky. The best. Yeah. Nothing's better. And I'm very, very mad at the Creed people for not bringing Mr. T because they followed the recipe perfectly, except for the last one. It should have been Mr. T's son, and we should have Mr. T trading him. But I got robbed <laughs> you're, of that You're experience. passionate about this. I can tell. <laughs> I went to see that movie. I figured he'd do a cameo. I figured they were lying to me. There was no cameo. There was no Mr. T. I'm sorry to ruin to everybody, but there is no Mr. T in it. So long story short of it, uh, we talked about the health ailments. So, you know, just as you get yourself healthy, just as you're feeling good, that's where I was at. Life is great. I, um, all of a sudden, I, I'm not walking. One day, my foot balloons on me, my right foot, and I can't put on shoes and I can barely walk. I start going to doctors, specialists, they're probing me, testing me. Nobody can figure out what's wrong with me. And I'm like, what the heck is this? Like, you, you don't understand, like when God takes away your foot from you and you're on crutches. So I was going to still do yoga, yoga, by the way. So I went on the crutches 
And they told me for insurance, you can't go into yoga like in this condition. I said, I'm fine. It's just a little sore. Don't worry about it. And I put the crutches off to the side and I limped into the studio because I knew if I do not exercise, my brain is going to turn to mush and I'm going to let my body go. Long story short of it, turned out I had a foot tumor. I didn't know such a thing even exists, but there was a tumor in my foot. I was misdiagnosed. The right specialist found from my MRI, got me into surgery right away. Took several months as far as recuperation, everything, till I was able to walk again. Malignant or no? It was benign. Okay. So it was literally like I was born with too much bone in my foot. It broke off at some point. It moved onto a nerve, and that's what caused everything. But nobody knew. Hmm. But why am I telling you this? Because I'm driving on a Saturday afternoon and going to go buy some clothing because I'm in better shape now. I know everything's good. I'm, I'm really healing well. I'm at the gym. And I, it hit me. I go... I'm going to be a boxer. That's it. I've been given a second chance. And three people told me about this one studio called Grants at Finch and Dufferin area, Grants MMA. I drive to Grants and they're closing in like half an hour. I make it in time and I walk in there. I start looking around and there's a guy behind a desk. He's like six foot five, huge. He looks like Jimmy Butler, like he's just really jacked. And he says to me, uh, how can I help you? And I said to him, hello, I'm Jonathan, chosen lawyer. I want to be a boxer. I chose a lawyer, yeah. Because what, what drove you to be a boxer? Why do you want to be a boxer? I said to him, I looked at his, no word of a lie, he has a magazine on the corner of his desk. Mr. T was on the cover. I looked at the Mr. T and I said, I want to be Mr. T. I want to be a boxer. <laughs> he goes to me, there's only one problem with that. You know you're not black, right? <laughs> and I said to him, black isn't a color, my friend. It's a state of mind. And he looked at me, he goes, you're whacked. I like you. <laughs> That was Saturday, Mark. Monday morning, I was there 7 a.m. and we started training together. I love it. That's great. I trained for almost two years with him and the plan was for me to go into the ring and fight one charity match. That was the game plan. And did you? Hell no. No. I sucked. I'm very bad. <laughs> I have no... God gave me a lot of things. He gave me the ability to talk, to write, but he did not give me the ability to box. So two years of it with world-class training and I still... I was getting injured all the time and not even much sparring with it. And I kept going to the sports clinic and the doctor told me, you're a 40 something year old Jewish lawyer, five foot six. You have no business being in the boxing ring. This is gonna be very bad for you. But I told everybody that I'm going in the boxing ring so I have to follow through with it. And I set myself a deadline. It was gonna be 2019. I was gonna do it within two years. So I was telling this story to a buddy of mine who's a realtor and he looks at me and he goes to me, with your physique, screw boxing, go do bodybuilding. I'm like, bodybuilding, eh? So I thought, that's a lot safer. And I'm going to do a show. And I've told people I'm going to do a show. So let's do that. So no. I steered course. Do we have pictures of this yet? Do we got the pictures? Okay, good. They're, they're going up just so you know. That's fine. They are on the internet. They are out you're, there. You're I'm not heavily tanned. <laughs> I'm not sure. Buddy, the only real reason I'm not going to, besides the full body waxing, which I don't recommend for anybody, that's not fun. And it, you, there are areas you think would be more painful than others. No, it's the most easiest areas that are the most painful. So that was part of it. I would do the waxing again. It's the spray tanning. Mm -hmm. When you are standing there and they're just spraying you and spraying you and spraying you, that stuff does not come off. Like it took months. I'm walking around. It's embarrassing. Like I'm a lawyer and I'm walking around with this half orange. I look like Donald Trump, you know, uh, fell into a pile of mud. Like <laughs> this orange brown goo. So... But it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. I had a lot of support. I hired really great trainers. So it's it's it, an incredible discipline, right? Like what you have to go through to get on stage as far as 
burning out, you know, getting your body fat down, the dehydration actually happens as well for exposure, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big undertaking. And uh, the hardest part of it, you would think, okay, it's getting your, your body the physique, getting the cuts, uh, stomach, uh, learning to discipline food, but the posing, unless you are a trained dancer or you've used the posing before, I found that really challenging. And I'm like a month and a half out and I realized, oh, wait a minute. It's not just having a nice body. You have to learn routines. You got to learn how to pose properly. And, you know, we all just sit there and do this. It's not that. There's an art to it. You have to suck it in. You have to put your toe down. You have to turn in the right angles. You have to keep the smile. There's a lot of art to it. I'm assuming you had a coach for that, though. So I went to the workshop for, it's called Ultimate Fitness Competition, UFC, um, UFE, sorry. And so I'm uh, Ultimate Fitness Events, and I'm at their workshop. It's a month and a half out, and I figured this is going to be a snap. They're just going to show me a little bit of posing. I'm watching this for like two hours. Mark, I want to hurl. I am screwed because I don't know what the hell I am doing. I'm the worst bodybuilding posing guy there is ever. All I know how to do is this. Literally, and I can't even do that properly. Were you better than you were a boxer? Uh, I'm still better than I was as a boxer. Okay, okay. So what did I do with that? I I'm, I'm watched one guy. He came in late to the workshop. It was about 12 of us. He was unbelievable. He could do a vacuum. He could suck in his stomach and invert in his stomach. He had competed in a Mr. Mumbai contest. He had just came to Canada from India. I stopped him at once. Everybody was done. I, I called him over and I said, I got to tell you, man, you are the Indian Arnold Schwarzenegger. You are incredible. And he's, he was a big Arnold fan like me. Mm. said to him, out of curiosity, what are you doing for the next few weeks? And he says to me, uh, I'm uh, taking time off work and I'm just going to get ready for the competition. I said, where do you live? He lived across the street from my office. Incredible. So I said to him, guess what we're doing together for the next few weeks? I'm hiring you and you're going to train me every day to be a bodybuilding guy because I don't know how to pose. He looks at me and he does the glare and he says, you, you're going to go to Walmart. You're going to pick up three mirrors, not two mirrors, not four mirrors, but three mirrors. You're going to set them up in your boardroom. He was you're, gamed. You're going to go get your outfit. I want you to get three different trunks. These are where I want you to get them from. I want to select them. You're going to pose, you're going to change and you're going to pose in your trunks, in your office, in your boardroom. Every day, I will be there at 3 p.m. sharp. We train for one hour at least. I'm going to bring the music. I want you ready. This is what I want you to eat before. I feel bad for staff. <laughs> they, oh, they thought it was hilarious. What, they watched me going around in my trunks. and like, what the heck is this guy doing? And there's music blaring. You know, it's raining men coming out of my boardroom. And they're like, what is he doing in there with this guy? But the guy was teaching me how to pose. And it was just like the karate kid. You know, remember the karate kid with jacket on, jacket off? Wax on, wax off. Yeah. yeah. It was like, again, again. I go, let's just do it. No, no. I go, you, you got to get the one movement. So it take us two days to do the one movement. Take us one day to just learn one turn, where to put the feet, where to go. It was so disciplined. He gave me homework. I had to videotape it, send it to him. That was the worst part of it. And you know what? He turned out to be one of my best friends. Uh, he had nowhere to stay for the competition. He ended up staying with me in my Airbnb. We ended up budding it up. We were on stage together. Where was the competition? It was in Hamilton, actually. Okay. That one was the Halloween special, the Halloween Havoc one. Mm -hmm. So we went down to Hamilton. It was uh, October 2019. We competed in one of the events together. I competed in three different events. We won medals together. That's amazing. That's awesome. So we're actually this picture of us together on stage. There's my coach with the gold. I won the bronze. So you have to send us that picture as well. It was amazing. And, you know, you, do this, you, you, you really build lifelong friends there. Everybody's in the same kind of boat. Everybody's there for their own reason. But it was such a, the best part of that 
was not going up on stage and doing because I don't even remember. You go up on stage, you do your routine, you come back five minutes later, you don't remember doing it because mm-hmm. you're so focused. But it's the friendship part of it. So we're all hanging out on the second day. We're now waiting. When we go out on stage, when you go up on stage, by the way, and you're at these competitions at night and you're watching, you're thinking, oh, I don't know if that guy did so well there. You're not winning the medals off of the show in front of the audience. You've done a previous show in the morning in front of the judges and they've already graded you. They've already decided who's winning. So that competition so at night for the is the nice show time for, yeah. the, for the family members to take pictures. But the results, those are not the deciding results unless you really flab it I up. I didn't realize that. So we're, so we're sitting back there and they start announcing people. And, you know, I was just happy to compete. And they go through the, the, the different categories and they call me up and I'm like, I won. And I run up there and I got a bronze. I'm like, oh, man, I got a, I got a medal. This is unbelievable. I didn't think I would win. And then... Sure enough, a few uh, rounds later, and they're going to another category, and they and there's yep back again the chosen lawyer. I'm like ah that's me, and I was like I was like over the moon. I was doing like circles on the stage, and I'm like my my medals are like clamping like horses like and you know we were all just laughing, but we had a good time with it. It was all about the energy at the end of the day. So I tell anybody if you're ever thinking about doing something like that, don't go in because you want to kill yourself to get yourself in a perfect state. Do it because you want to get healthy and have a lot of fun with others who are in the same boat with you. Nice. Now, um, it's funny. You threw a curveball at me right before you can, we start filming here, um, which is very fitting for one of the next topics. But uh, uh, you just informed me that you're becoming a pro wrestling um, manager. So before we get into that, I want you to tell me about that. I need you to tell me who's your favorite. Deciding. This is for you. And... Is it Andre? Is it Hulk? Who do you like? Oh, it's a great picture in the back. Remember the old school? Look at Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I remember when Andre the Giant beat Hulk Hogan for the belt, and he had a side deal with the Million Dollar Man and handed over the belt to the Million Dollar Man. But you can't have these side deal shenanigans in wrestling. So the commissioner of the WWF at the time, Jack Tunney, ruled that the belt is invalid, and now they will have a tournament. In the finals of that tournament... Is was, this where he body slammed Andre? He bought out Andre, correct. Yeah. Bobby Heenan, you know, the Heenan family. Uh, and No, when Hulk body slammed oh, Andre. No. Remember so he picked him up? Hulk did body slam Andre, correct. But I believe that was in WrestleMania. That was a different event. Oh, this was okay. when Andre turned on him. They were lifelong friends. Yeah, okay. Andre was so proud of Hogan that he won the belt. But he got jealous, got bought off. Hulk won. Andre came back, did beat Hulk. Handed over the belt to the Million Dollar Man. Million Dollar Man ended up getting into the tournament against the Macho Man, and Macho Man became the champion. My guy back in the day was the Macho Man. He was the Macho Man. I love the Macho Man. I loved Andre. Even now, when I'm with my trainer and we're doing our our, uh, fitness, um, you know, uh, personal training sessions, and my bench is a little flat, and I'm not going well, and I ate well, I slept well, you know what I tell him, Mark? Mm. It's time to hulk up. You know, Hulk up is when you're yeah, getting yeah, yeah. hit and you're like, then <laughs> <laughs> you get this intensity. Yeah. You can't Hulk up too often, but if you need to get some results done, especially in the gym or in boxing, you got to Hulk up for a good 30 seconds or so. You can do anything you want. Hulk still inspires me to this day with Amazing. hulking up. It's funny. I was never like a huge wrestling guy, but if I had to say who my favorite was, was uh, Ricky Steamboat. 
Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Yeah. And Ricky lost his intercontinental belt to the Macho Man. He's a historian on this stuff. Macho Man, I believe, in WrestleMania 3 in Detroit. And yeah. not only did he beat Steamboat, he put his neck over the barrier, gave him the, uh, the, the, uh, the two-handed fist off the top rope. Steamboat was out. He can't, he, he, can't, he can't talk now because his throat is destroyed because of the Macho Man. Now, I've always known that you're like a massive wrestling fan. So how did that lead into uh, um, becoming a professional wrestling manager? Which is a, re- a recent venture for you, right? So my, my, my trainer knows how much of a wrestling fan I am. In having our sessions together, he made a special playlist for me. All the wrestling theme song, walkout songs for the wrestlers, because that pumps me up. When I created my uh, podcast, The Chosen Life, I had an actual music producer, a real-life musician, uh, prepare and produce. And I, wrote, I actually have co-writing credits for my... And we created a theme song for me. So it was based on a wrestling theme song. And there's a Chosen Lawyer theme song. You can go on Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, I co-wrote the thing. I learned how music is prepared and produced. It's crazy, by the way. And you think that it's all done in one session, but no... They do the instrumental different. They put the vocals. They combine it too. It's a fascinating process. So my trainer was part of all this. And he says to me, you know, I've always wanted... I love wrestling. I love wrestling. I have the body for it. I've done competitions. And he's in great shape. You know, young guy. And he's like, I really want to be a professional wrestler. And I said to him, funny, because in wrestling, I never wanted to be a wrestler. I just want to be a wrestling manager. I want to come out. I want to yell. I want to cause crap. I want to, you know, manage my guys. I want to cheat. That's where I want to be at. So um, we brainstormed on it through Connects. Lo and behold, for the past few months, he's been going off and training to be a professional wrestler in lowest dungeon of Hamilton out of all places. He found a place in Hamilton, a trainer. This guy trains professional wrestlers. How old is he to be getting into this at this age? Uh, in his early 30s. Early, early 30s. Early 30s. But as he said, you know, it's funny, in wrestling... It's funny because it doesn't matter what age you are. He has no mileage on the body. It's not like he's a, you know, you can have a 20-year-old that's broken down because he played professional football. You can have somebody 40 that has no mileage on their body because they didn't have contact. He has a no-contact body. He's fresh. He's, he's fresher than most 21-year-olds. So we got aligned with this trainer in Hamilton. Now he's a trainer in Toronto as well. And he's good. He's great. He was a natural at it. Like, the trainer's watching him and saying, you know, wow, uh... I've seen guys who have been doing this for five years. You're doing it for five weeks. You're already ahead of them. So within a few months, he debuted at his first show. I was out there. I wasn't out. Uh, I was in the audience. I'm keeping my profile low with it. And you know what? He kicked some butt. He looked great out there. Uh, Mason Rush is his uh, wrestling name. And if you check out my Instagram handle under Chosen Lawyer, I am the manager for Mason Rush. And Mason is going to be going real far with this. And uh, goal is up to WWE. And That's awesome. You can do That's it. So, good luck, Mason. So I have nothing else to do with my life. I might as well be a wrestling manager too while I'm at it. <laughs> Mark, remember there's an expression. If you, I don't know if you ever heard this one. If you want to get something done, ask someone who's busy to do it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I'm from that. But uh, the, your other venture, because you have so many other things going on, the Chosen Life podcast. And now that's leading into writing your own book. So let's talk about that. What was Chosen Life podcast? What's your focus? And and get into the book after that. So with the Chosen Life podcast, so I'm a big YouTube fan. I love it. You know, like I actually bought a paid YouTube subscription because I didn't want to watch the ads. And most people watch TV. I was watching YouTube for the past few years, especially during the pandemic. 
I have certain interests that I like as far as niches like wrestling, cars, training, watches, whatever it is. And I watched YouTubers on their specific niche item. What I was finding was I would start to get bored with some of these shows because it was the same topic, same conversations. And I was enjoying it, but I thought to myself, you know what? Truth is, I think I can go out there and do better than this. So I decided to put my, my mouth where my money was. And I said, okay, so if I want to go put a channel together, what am I going to do? And I thought, you know what? Why don't you just take everything you like and do it all? So let's make a lifestyle podcast. Let's think of all the stuff that I enjoy, the things I... Because as far as working as a lawyer and meeting realtors, mortgage brokers, clients, I don't bond with them over real estate and law. I bond with them over commonalities, mm-hmm. hobbies, interests, lifestyles, whatever it is. You'll find one commonality and your friends. That's it. So let's bond over all these commonalities. So uh, I decided to make the lifestyle podcast and every single week we'll have a different guest. We'll have different topics and let's make some fun out of it. And uh, it's still it's still going. That's my main bread and butter show. But I knew I love baseball and I love wrestling way too much. And I'm going to talk about it way too much if I do it on the one show. So I branched off and made two other podcasts so that I can have one dedicated to wrestling, one dedicated to baseball, and then keep the lifestyle one. So my main one is the Chosen Life podcast. I've had a range of guests. I've had a Hollywood actress on there. I've had the owner of a supplement, uh, Perfect Sports, was on there, Bruce Calero. Um, Dan Milstein, the, uh, the famed hockey agent. And it's just different people from different walks of life. But when I look for the guests, and very often I know them, why do I pick them is because I'm thinking I want to entertain people first and foremost. They're interesting people. I find them riveting. I think other people will also. But also, Mark, the truth is I want to inspire people. Because people are saying, you know, I'm, I'm too old. I'm broken down. It's too late for me. I can't follow my dreams. Those are all bloody excuses. The people that I bring on the show, no matter what their age, no matter where they started off, no matter how much money they had in their bank account, they all worked hard. They all were dedicated and focused and they got themselves somewhere in life. I want to inspire others to watch and hear those stories mm-hmm. and say, that could be me. You know what? It's not too late. This is pretty cool. So it's never, ever too late. So the, really at the end of the day is to inspire And if we can reach one person that says, you know what, I'm at the end of my rope and I'm done for, so I'm just going to just drift through life and it's too late for me. No, it's never too late. Go hit a gym, go eat well, go start thinking about your goals and start making your dreams reality. Amazing. And now that's transitioning into a book. You're on your third edit, so you're looking to release in January, you were saying? Correct. It was supposed to be in the fall, but uh, uh, it's my first book. Uh, I've never... Were you a writer? Have you always been a writer? I know you had the blog in the past, but uh, would you consider yourself a writer? If I had to consider myself first and foremost... You're a lawyer, so I know you're a reader. So I knew from a young age I had a gift for writing. It was just... You, you just know, like when you're getting A pluses in English and you're not even doing any of the work and you're not studying and you just comes, words just flow through my hands. Like the way I can describe it to you, like, you know, when you ever see a prodigy, you heard of a prodigy in piano, that they went to the piano and they just started playing? Mm-hmm. That's how I was with writing. I just naturally liked writing. That's how I expressed myself. So the issue was, is that I started and stopped several books and I never felt it. Depends on where I was in my life. I was in very dark places in my younger years. At the time, was that fictional or nonfiction? It was generally always fictional. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, some nonfiction as well. It depends on where I was. You know, really, I think uh, I was really captivated by Stephen King for a long time. And I was reading Stephen King nonstop for like four years. So 
I started working on what I thought was my best book. I made it to a few chapters into it and I realized I'm really, really influenced by Stephen King here. Now I'm doing my own life story in a way where I thought my life would go, but it's very dark, very grim. So I burnt it. I, I hand wrote it and I just took, I worked on it. I was out in New Mexico. I was visiting my uncle. I was 17. I wrote out all this stuff and I went, I stopped it. I read it a year later. I'm like, I'm not doing this. It's too dark. I can't go there. And I burnt it. It doesn't exist. It's gone. It's still in my head. But so it was a nonfiction book with a Stephen King twist. It, it, it you could see where the influences were, okay. like the, the reality of it is. Like I love John Grisham at one point, and I if I start writing, problem is that's why when I'm writing, I don't like to read because I don't want to be influenced. I want it to come from my own energy, my own habits, yeah, yeah, my yeah. own personality, where I'm at. So when I finished the blogging and I went off to do yoga, I never wrote again. I never read again. I I, I had blockages. It just wasn't happening for me. So I, that's the longest I've ever spent in my life non-writing. Mm. And then one Christmas time, I felt good one day and it hit me. I saw the title, I saw the chapters, and I wrote that out in about 10, 15 minutes. I wrote every single chapter heading and I started writing my book. And how long ago was this? Like how long have you been working on this? So I wrote that, let's say, now it would be about a year and a half ago, okay. give or take. And I spent... I wrote out two of the chapters, I had 10 pages, and I stopped. And I started marinating on it, it was like January, February, and I said to myself, wait a minute, you met a publisher once, and they're really into spiritual books, meditation, uh, I should reach out to them and get their opinion. So I wrote, I wrote to them, they responded back, and they said, okay, in any potential author, you need to sign an NDA. I said, I'm not looking to get published, I just wanted feedback. I know you're very busy, but can I get an idea if I'm on the right track here? I wasn't actually intending to write the book, finish it now. It was starting that it was me a project over the next few years. Mm -hmm. That's how long it would take. I sent them my 10 pages, Mark. I got a response back about a week later. We love you. We want to sign you. Let's make this book happen. My That's response. A huge compliment. That's great. Well, not my reaction. It was, it was, I, I was stunned. I wrote, I, 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 sorry, we were writing and then we went on the phone. I think we did Zoom and I looked at uh, the publisher. Now the pressure's on, right? I looked at her. I said, are you effing crazy? Like, you want to sign me over 10 pages? Like, and she looked at me and she said, I think this is going to be the biggest book we ever publish. I see where you're going with this. We have to, do, you have to do this book. So we began talking and I think it was about a three, four week process, if I'm not mistaken. And I was very hesitant on it. And I just, because I knew the time commitment, I knew it had to be done. And I, I had so much on the go at this point that I said, I can't commit to writing a book over this short period because they want to do it over a year or so. So finally, after hoeing, humming, making sure about the contract, I was interviewing them more than interviewing me, which is funny. You know, most authors want to get signed here. I'm not that concerned with it. I came to the publisher and I said, look, my real concern with this at the end of the day, uh, if I'm going to do this, I don't want to write a book and put all this time for a book that has no chance to succeed. I know you can't guarantee me I'll be on the New York Times bestseller. I know you can't guarantee me that Oprah's gonna read it, but where do you, what is your vision of this book? What is your vision for me? And I need to know, are we aligned with it? She said, I was watching your podcast, read what I read. You, my friend, are the next Joe Rogan, thousand percent, and this will be the biggest book we ever do. So I looked at her and I said, I guess we're writing a book then. Incredible. And so I went up to my cottage every weekend Every Sunday, I shut everything down, 
from seven in the morning till about one in the afternoon. And all I did was write. That's the only times I wrote, but I did nice focused work. And here we are 22 chapters later and the book is going to And what was that process like? You, you said that you're on your third edit now, right? So edit one, edit two, are you, are you still changing the book? Are you taking it in different directions after a review in? By edit three, are you just correcting things? Like what's, what's that process look like? Everybody has a very unique process on how they write their books. The more traditional method is you sit, you write your book and wherever you're writing it, and then you send the full book, which is called the manuscript, over to the publisher, and then you work with an editor to start doing your tweaks. The way we did it was a little more unique. I wrote a chapter, editor reads the chapter, puts in comments, questions. I got to go in. I got to make my fixes. Then they go back in, have more questions, more edits. I got to go and make more changes. We're on our third process of this. So it's not ghost written. I wrote it. I changed it, but with feedback and questions from the editor. So we're kind of like bouncing ideas off one another. Uh, there was very few chapters that ever needed major surgery, fortunately but it's a long, long process. The scariest part of the process, I can tell you as a writer, is I thought that I lost three of the chapters. We, we had a book meeting, as we do every week, and at the end of the meeting, she goes, um, you said that you finished these chapters, where are they? I go, they're there. She goes, they're not, they're in the drive. I went to look, Mark, they're not there, and I wasn't backing up at the time, because I just took it for granted they were backing it up. I said, those are three original chapters that are gone. I, I, I literally turned sick. I, I probably got a little upset, and I said, you don't understand, I cannot rewrite these things. They're done, they're one-offs. And I realized, wait a minute, I deleted some pictures out of my drive. I bet you they deleted those chapters. I thought they were saving into another drive, but they were in, a, they were in my drive. I contact Google within 10 minutes, put back everything as long as you don't realize that that's unheard of even like, if you permanently google doesn't respond to anybody how, how do you how'd even you if off? you permanently delete something out of a drive as long as it's within 30 days it's still sitting somewhere mm. it came back i can't believe you got a response google like there's no way of contacting them it's insane well i found them and they came back to me in 10 minutes so i was so happy that these chapters were back that that night we were in the middle of the book at this point i got so inspired i saw the ending of the book the next morning I woke up, I wrote the ending. I was so happy that, you know, it's funny. You get good energy and you never know where it's going to go. So here I am. I have the beginning. I have the middle. I haven't written the end of the book, but I had the last chapter. So I, I worked backwards. So now that you're going through this process, not to get ahead of yourself here, but now that you're going through this process, yes. are you starting to have thoughts about another book, another idea, another concept? Well, that's one of the things we talked about because I told her, like, I had idea for several books. I, there's so many things I wanted to do as far as talking about yoga, talking about exercise, talking about setting goals, how to manifest meditation. I ended up being very ambitious. The book is everything. This book is like my Mona Lisa. This is like my symphony. This is, if I'm gonna write one book to the world and every single thing I wanna tell you, if you have anywhere where you are in life and you need to figure out your shit and you need to figure out, excuse my language, and where you gotta go, this book will answer for you. So that book was done as a one and done. But I began to be warned, they're gonna want a follow-up. Mm -hmm. I think this is gonna go well, you need to go write the follow-up. So we discussed what the follow-up would be, probably a memoir, started writing a little bit of it, and I stopped it. I said, it's going very dark for me. I don't like going to dark places. Plus, I can't get into this because we're still editing book one. I'm so interested in this darkness now. <laughs> um, life no, knowing, knowing you the way I do, I can't even imagine a memoir of yours going dark, but I, 
I grew up most of my life, you know, you see me, I'm fairly bubbly, I'm excited, positive person. I didn't grow up that way. Mm. And we don't always grow up the way we want to no, for, for sure. various circumstances, for reasons. I'm, I'm very open about it. I'm, I'm not afraid to talk about that. But uh, sometimes you don't want to go there because you have to relive trauma. And mm -hmm. the trauma is a really hard thing to overcome. Mm -hmm. And people involved, sometimes you don't want to hurt people. So anytime you're going to put something out on social media as a professional, you're going to write a book about it. you got to think who's involved because the one thing is, one thing tell your story and to inspire others, but you don't want to hurt others in the process. So that's where I put that off for a little bit. My focus in my brain writing wise is only about the upcoming book, the Bible 3.0. And that's where I want to go right now. And we'll see, you know what? I feel like at the end of the day, the critics, the audience, they're going to tell me they're not afraid. Trust me. I see them on the podcast. I see your, your comments on YouTube people. And you think when I'm smart, you think when I'm an idiot, that's okay. I love feedback. That's one thing I learned early on from the blogging days, Mark. A lot of people don't like criticism. I don't mind it. Some of your best feedback is negative. Mm -hmm. The worst thing in the world is to create art and to have zero feedback. When nobody is commenting on you, when nobody's listening or watching you, that's when it really hurts. I was talking about this with Matt Campoli last week on, on this show. And, uh, but 95% of that negative feedback, 98%, 99% of it is just someone that's not happy in their own life, right? There's just so much uh, hate out there. So it's, it's, you can't even get caught up in it. The thing which people don't realize, you know, they take it very personally. So you read a, you read a comment, like I read a comment on, on the channel and somebody says, chosen lawyer doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. He's putting me to sleep, blah, blah, blah. That's fine. Chances are for that armchair quarterback, that's not about me. It's about them. When they're speaking about me, they're looking in the mirror really speaking about themselves because for most people, they have a hard time praising others because if you're going to praise somebody for something that they got off their butt and did, they have to admit to themselves that they're not doing it. Mm -hmm. So the easier thing is to criticize saying they're the aberration because otherwise you don't want to feel like you're the aberration. If you're going to go criticize somebody else, whether it's somebody, you know, family, friend, coworker, celebrity, First and foremost, look in the mirror for yourself. Take accountability for yourself. And that's where you're gonna, you're gonna get a lot more ahead in life rather than worrying about other for people sure. in their direction. Sure. So that's where I don't take that personally. I think it's great, but I'm bringing an emotion out of somebody. And that emotion feeds off conversations. Some people back them up, some people back me up. Sometimes we're all aligned together, but it's nice to foster good, wholesome, intelligent conversation and to be the hub where you created that. Nice. Congrats on everything. You got a lot going on and um, it's well-deserved. So uh, we're going to end with two questions. And for some reason, everybody gets really stressed out by these questions. Um, well, not necessarily the first one, but the second one. So first question is two favorite neighborhoods in Toronto or the GTA. This is say the greater Toronto area. So for me, any favorite part, it all, it always has to do with memories. For me, it's all about memories. And uh, like, I know my favorite meals because I remember like good, good. events associated with them. I, I, one of my favorite Chinese food restaurants, I love eating there because I remember eating their food watching the Joe Carter home run back in the World Series days. I was sitting in my kitchen, never forget that. Uh, one of my first jobs was working with a yo-yo company. Yo like yo-yo? Yo-yos. And they were a yo-yo distributor. They just came into Canada. By our second year, we were the biggest toy of that Christmas season. But why am I telling you this? Because the first locations they set up when they came to Toronto was on the Danforth. 
And so I am very partial to the Danforth. I got to work there for a summer, walk the streets, eat at the restaurants. There's something really, really special about it. Absolutely love it. So I would definitely say that's neighborhood number one. Neighborhood number two is actually in the North York uh, Bayview area, Bayview and Shepherd. I was living out there for a while. There's a shopping mall at Bayview Village and there's a lot of nice parks. I walk in the dog and I like it because it's busy, but you're in the suburbs and it's quiet, but there's things to do. So for very various different reasons, like I love the Danforth area. I personally can't live there. It's just too, the traffic, I will lose my mind on it, Mm. but I love visiting there. So, and I'm a big foodie guy. Nothing for me beats a Danforth restaurant. So it's the end to the yank. Nice. So with that said, then what's your two favorite restaurants in the greater Toronto area? I think you have to focus on the Danforth now. <laughs> My two favorite restaurants, interesting. Um, number one, actually, is a restaurant by the name of Paese, Italian restaurant in the North York area at uh, Bathurst & Wilson. Okay. Absolutely love them. Uh, they've been around forever. Uh, very close, partial to that restaurant. I, I have a lot of ties in that area, and uh, I've had so many meetings there. Um, the menu's great, I can't say enough, and I love Italian food. So it's, it's the one restaurant where they know my table, they know me, you can walk in, it's fabulous. It's a lot of fun out there. So uh, that's restaurant number one. And restaurant number two is down the road at Bayview Village called Tabuli. They have a couple oh, of, of locations. You're the second person to name Tabuli as their favorite, one of their favorite restaurants. Oh my Lord, the food just not, does not stop over yeah. there. And somebody took me I over there. I haven't had it in a few years. We were, Blair and I used to get a lot. When Blair lived down at, remember we lived at uh, Princess. Um, we used to get a lot down that, uh, down that end. That was back in like 2012 though. And for, they have a location down in the, uh, in the Eglinton area, you know, and uh, the one at Baby Village. But it's funny because you go into my notes and I have little cheat sheets because I, I actually looked at the seating map. I know the seat number. So when I reserve on open table, I tell them the seat number, the table number. So last time I went over to Tabuli, I walk in there and I said, uh, I have a reservation. And they said, oh, we actually just sat somebody at that table. I said, but I reserved that table. That's my table. I said, oh, sorry, sir. I said, yeah, um, move them. I don't care. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I, I have to sit in that table and I'm a regular. So I'm not, I, I, I hate to do this. But you just sat them, tell them there's a mistake. I, like the Million Dollar Man, everybody's got their price. <laughs> and uh, Million Dollar Man would just clear out the restaurant. I got my table. You should have covered their dinner. <laughs> they were, they, you know what? They were easy going about it. They didn't care. And it was a fairly open restaurant. It wasn't like a case where like every table was full. The restaurant was empty. So they just moved them to another right yeah. beside there and we're good. Nice. Reason is, Mark, you know, uh, everybody's got their own comfort level. I've watched too many mafia movies. I cannot sit in a restaurant unless my back is to the wall, <laughs> yeah. because that way they can't shoot you in the back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a pleasure having you on. You're an old friend, and we've been doing business together for a long time, so this is a great uh, hour. I think we're probably pushing an hour. I, I appreciate you bringing me on, honestly. You've been a great friend, a brother to me. You know, a lot of stuff, you know, we know each other for this long, but when you sit down and talk dedicated for an hour, you never know where it's going to go. No, no. So it's nice that we have a you're a wrestling point. manager. Who would have thought? Let, let, you know what? It's one of those things. You sit today and you say, here's where life is. We'll see where things I go. I can't for. wait to see the chosen outfit for the wrestling manager character. I have a pretty good idea. All I can tell you is Versace will definitely be involved. Yeah, nice. And don't forget your gift. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. That was beautiful. I'll make sure it gets a prominent place. Thanks, Jay.